studying from John chapter 1, verses 35 through the end of the chapter, verse 51. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And the disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, and it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard John and followed him, and he, he first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which of course is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. Then Jesus saw him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is called Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told, and, and told him, Follow me. And now Philip was, with, uh, was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. And Peter found Nathanael and told him, And we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus answered, Rabbi, Nathanael replied, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, Thanks be to God indeed. Well, again, good morning. If you don't have your Bibles open yet, you're going to want to turn in them to John chapter 1. You may want to go ahead and turn over to John 10. We'll be referencing it briefly here a little bit later. Just kind of have yourselves ready for that here in a few moments. But uh, yeah, man, we're, we're, we're kind of pressing through. We're uh, not counting the Advent series. Well, I guess counting the Advent series. We're now eight weeks into the Gospel of John and haven't even gotten out of the first chapter yet. So you see what we're trying to do here. Um, if you're a guest with us this morning, this is a great day for you to be here. We're thankful for you to be here because what we're going to talk about this morning is really a lot about the heartbeat of the church. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be pursue discipleship and growth in Christ? What does it mean to be identified in Christ? And, and so from this text I just read, we're going, to, we're going to press into this question of what does it look like to be a Jesus-saturated disciple? It's a really important question for all of us. There's a lot of concepts out there that lurk around and try to tell us what the church should be about. I say this often, what the church should emphasize. And uh, I think in this passage, we're going to see really what, the, what it means for the church, to, what, what we should emphasize. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And so I hope this morning will encourage you and edify you. So this weekend, sometime this week, I like to read lots of different news articles throughout the week, and whether it be sports or government politics, whatever. And I read an article about um, that surveyed the top 25, at least in their mind, top 25 sports fan bases across the world. Okay, and they ranked them and all the fun stuff. And 
Um, and so they had tw top 25 and basically what, what, what kind of characterized them, what made them tick and why they were what they were. And really interesting article. Try to cross-reference it with other people's takes on the top 25 and a lot of similarities uh, between what they thought the top 25 fan bases in the world were versus the fan bases here in, um, in, in, in this particular article I read. And uh, it, was it was quite interesting. Um, what I found interesting probably the most, not so much me because I am a soccer fan, um, was that over half of them, 13 of them, were soccer fan bases, international soccer fan bases. Now this probably disappoints many of us in America, right? Because we take our sports very seriously. I mean, we have five major sports that bring in billions of dollars a year in revenue. And every one of those sports is vying for market share in various cities. Here in Nashville, we have two major sports. The, we've got, of course, the, the, um, the uh, Tennessee Titans, and then we have the, Na the Nashville Predators, so our two major league uh, uh, sports that we have here. And there's talk about trying to make major league basketball to Nashville. I mean, we are always trying to crunch in and get market share of, of, of people's attention in various communities and various contexts. And what I find interesting about the fact that there's so many uh, of these fan bases were soccer related, and particularly international soccer related, was that um, it's how different it is. They don't the other sport like we have other nations have the same some of the same sports that we have, but soccer by far is like the thing, and everyone knows this. It is by far the most popular sport in the world, and and it's and it's interesting to me how different it is there. Like you can have in Europe very small towns, like less than 200,000 people in the town have a full-on professional soccer team, which you would never find here in the United States. And it just tells you something about what drives the town, what drives the interest, what drives the fandom in these towns. Um, it's very, very interesting. And I think it's interesting whether or not you are looking at teams, and if you're not familiar with these names, you should go look them up because it's really fascinating, whether it's Premier League in England, Bundesliga, uh, La Liga, or Serie A, which is Italian League. Whatever you are looking at, these teams are um, they're driven more by commitment to the community than the community's commitment to the team. It's almost like the, the team itself is an extension of the culture of the city, of the community, more so than it is here. Like, we can be fans, and there are people who are fans of different sports, and they don't even, you never lived in the cities that you are fans of, right? I mean, we've got New England fans in this room for, for some unexplicable reason um, in here, like Patriots fans. We've got Carolina fans. We've got all kinds of fans in here. And again, unexplicable reasons for these things. Um, but in these communities, it's not the city that props up the team, it's the team that props up the city. It's the team that reflects the values and the culture and the creeds and the commitments of that community. A good example of this and, and is a, a Netflix documentary called Sunderland Till I Die. If you've not watched this, which by the way, language warning, not probably good for little kids, but outside of that, really good show. But it's fantastic because it's about this little town in northern northern England or northern UK and it's a little industrial city that's 175,000 people that's smaller than Chattanooga y'all and their commitment to their soccer team their football team is unreal it drives everything it, because this this team reflects the values of this community it is everything it is there they def it's almost like they're going to defend the, the value and culture of their community it's like that's their army 
It's like this in the military. And, and it's so important here. When we talk about fan bases, though, what we are talking about is discipleship, aren't we? They've accommodated certain cultures and creeds of their community. They've embodied certain identity markers about what it means to be part of this tribe, whatever that tribe is. It's discipleship. Fan bases are discipleship. We make disciples. I mean, we are Tennessee uh, volunteer fans, sad as that may be right now, but we are that. I'm a Duke Univers- I'm a Duke Blue Devil fan, and, and that's even sad this year for some reason. But we're there because we're creating a culture, we're creating discipleship, and the church creates a culture too. The gospel creates a culture. Our theology creates a culture. Our, our, our confessions create a culture. The way we worship creates a culture. And yet, and that's why it's important that everything we do in the church is put against the scriptures and evaluated as to whether or not we should do those things. Because do they reflect not just what we want this church to be, but what God wants his church to be? That's what it means to be a disciple-making culture in the church. Are we doing what God wants us to do? And then if we are, then we will create the kind of disciples God wants us to make in our church. And that's our main idea. Followers of Jesus are disciples who embody a whole life ethic that seeks to see Jesus in every part of our life. Say that again. Get that into your heart. Like, Followers of Jesus are disciples who embody a whole life ethic that seeks to see, it's an intentional word, see Jesus in every part of our life. I use the word see there because if you watched and you paid attention to this text, the word see, the word saw, the word look, it's just everywhere in this passage. It is reminding us that the very heart of disciple making in the church is that we would properly see God. And by properly seeing God, what happens as a result? We properly see ourselves. We properly understand ourselves. You can't understand yourself. You can't see yourself if you don't first see, properly see God. And that's what, honestly, isn't it what we want most? Isn't that what we want most? Sadly, we want to know ourselves, but we try to divorce it from seeing God. And that's what our culture keeps driving and pushing hard away from these days, it feels like. Well, since the fall, since the garden. Three headings this morning from this text will help us grasp this idea of seeing Jesus as the center of discipleship. So first is we're going to see reflecting Jesus. True Jesus disciples, uh, Jesus-saturated disciples, are ref- they, they just seek to reflect Jesus in everything that they do. The second thing we'll see is they seek to depend on Jesus in everything they do. And then at the end, they seek to be known by Jesus. So reflect, depend, and be known by Jesus. So let's talk about that first section there, reflect Jesus. Jesus-saturated disciples seek to reflect, reflect Jesus. And we see this in his first two verses, verse 35 and 36. Then the next day, John was standing with the two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, when he saw Jesus passing by, what did he do? He said, look. Look, the Lamb of God. Look, the Lamb of God. John, we've said this numerous times over the last few weeks. John demonstrates the, the, one of the key truths of the Christian faith. It's all about Jesus, y'all. It's all about Jesus. 
When it stops being about Jesus, we've stopped being the church. We've stopped being what God calls us to do. We've stopped being on mission. Discipleship is about all about Jesus. And John the Baptist probably, probably like embodies this better than anyone in the New Testament. Because we've seen this already. Every time Jesus comes on the scene, look, Jesus, the Lamb of God. This is the one you've been waiting for. Every chance he gets, he's looking for Jesus. And what really makes this thing stand out to me is there's two things about this particular, these two verses that help me. And maybe it'll help you. First is, notice that he's with his disciples. Like, you can't make disciples if you're not with disciples. If, you're, if you don't see that every moment of your day and every relationship you have is an opportunity to make disciples. It's an opportunity to, to try to stir people's hearts and maybe shift people towards Christ and to take notice of Jesus. And his discipleship method, number two, is that he wants them to see Jesus. He's not trying to get them to see other things. He's not trying to see them turn and make much of other things or make other things priority in their life. He wants them to see Jesus. He's committed to continually invest in the followers of Jesus, right? That's that Matthew 28 reality that we see in Scripture, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples. Really, it's as you go is the idea there, as you go. In other words, going doesn't mean just moving and moving to another country, which it certainly can be that. But it is as you go. It's where you are. It's where God sends you. It's where God has planted you. It's where you and I live. Like, so John embodies this idea of continual investment in his followers. And then the goal of that is to continuously see and be looking for Jesus. To reflect Jesus as Jesus saturated disciples. Excuse my tongue twister there. Is to understand this is what it's all about. This is what we are called to do. The world wants us to get impassioned by any other thing out there, and you name it, it's out there, and they're trying to tell the church you should be concerned about these things. But the reality is the church is concerned about really one primary thing. Who is Jesus? Look, Jesus. Like, if you're reading the ESB version, this morning I'm using the CSB because I like that word look. That's so I was studying this week, and I actually use the CSB for private study more now than I used to. But it says, behold. And that's a wonderful term. But I chose this version because I don't remember the last time going across country or going across North Carolina, and out of the back seat of our van, my, one of my children, one of my sons goes, behold, Dad, a Starbucks. Like, that never happens, right? Now, listen, if it ever did happen, I would buy them anything they wanted in Starbucks when we stopped. Okay, behold, Dad. No, no one does that. We don't speak like that. It, it it loses a little bit for us in our modern world. Look, right? Look. Don't get your hopes up, guys. Okay, just want you to know that. Um, but uh, yeah, you got witnesses. You might as well use them. Um, but uh, but this idea of look is so important. Look. Set your eyes. Do you see what's unfolding right before you? Look, Jesus, this is the heartbeat of discipleship. So when you put all these things together, it's really a vital lesson about John the Baptist and about us. He's always looking, we should always be looking to make much of Jesus right in the middle of where we are as disciple makers. Now, the question becomes for us is, what does that, what does that mean for us? How, how do we tease that out? Well, a couple of thoughts. One is for the church, it certainly means that as we discern where we should be 
plugging in as a church, into a church, where we discern which the church should emphasize. It certainly means that every small group, every Sunday school class, every sermon, every, work, every worship service, every song, every prayer, man, it should, you should walk away with her going, I have seen Jesus. So that, that is a minimal thing for us as God's church, right? But the second thing is, it's, it's kind of pressing a little deeper, a little more individually for a second. As Christians, we know we need to be aware of the messages our lives are sending, right? That's what we mean to reflect Jesus. Does our lives reflect Jesus? Do people get drawn to Jesus? Or does Jesus kind of get washed into this haze of other things that tend to be more priorities for us in our lives? And that can be a, a number of things that can become the, the, the driving force of our lives. I mean, it's, it's okay. It's one thing to be health, have a healthy interest or a zeal or, or, or expertise and, and various things, one thing or the other, but it's quite another for the, that thing to take on an identity in our lives such that it clouds what others see about Jesus, right? Isn't that true? That should be what we are always evaluating our interests in and other things, right? Do people see Jesus more clearly or are they seeing, are they getting a clouded version of Jesus? Are they, are they seeing the Jesus that we want them to see, unfortunately? Can, a more, maybe, maybe a more pointed question is, can people have a relationship with us and walk away um, from us not being changed by our personal ambitions and our personal deal, or do they walk away going, wow, that person really loves Jesus? A diagnostic question for you and for me, something to really chew on this week, is when people meet you and they have a sustained conversation with you, and I have to ask this myself all the time, what do you want them to walk away remembering about you? How, how smart you are? How informed you are, how knowledgeable you are, how hardworking you are, how witty you are, how humorous you are? Or do you, you want them to walk away going, how magnificent Jesus is? That's the heart of a Jesus-saturated disciple. And it should be something that we constantly work on. And then the last thing, though, before we move on to this second point is, who are you investing in? Who, who's investing in you? Who's invested in you? Like that should be one of the things we look around our lives and go, so is someone invested in me? Are they? Do I see people invested in me? Have I invited others to be invested in me? Have I been invested in others? This is why we love being a multi-generational church, because we don't believe that investment is just, you need people like you. You need people who are not like you, because you need to get shocked out of your <laughs> narcissistic little world like I do constantly. So the first level, the first understanding of, of Jesus-centric discipleship is that we would reflect Jesus. The second is that we would depend upon Jesus. And there, there are three things that we're going to see here in these next couple of verses that help us understand what it looks like to depend on Jesus. One is that he's our true light. Two, we'll see that he, is, um, he empowers our joyful obedience. And then third, we'll see that he gives us our true identity. So let's just kind of pick up on these ideas here in verse 37. Look again with me. It says, uh, the two disciples... Again, John was just pointing to Jesus, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and you will see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him all that day. 
The first thing that you see in these discipleships is in, in these disciples is that they are looking to Jesus for light. This is obviously while they're out there with John, right? Something about their own religious experience, being trained in Judaism, just wasn't jiving. It wasn't living in their hearts. It wasn't alive in them. And so perhaps there was this pulling, maybe a voice, something of that nature, screaming inside them, there has to be more. And so they are looking to Jesus. They follow after him, and Jesus looks back at them, and he asks them the question, what are you looking for? Do you see the emphasis on seeing? Jesus is not asking them necessarily what are you looking for in terms of physical things. He's asking them what are you looking for internally? What are you looking for for your soul? This is really what's happening here when he asks them this question. These, these folks, these, these disciples, which we'll find out later on is Andrew, and it is John, the writer of the Gospel of John, who are these two disciples. We'll see Andrew more specifically here in a moment. They're just looking for more. Obviously, they're looking for more. They're out here in this, hanging out with this fringe movie with John the Baptist and his weird camel hair, you know, locust-eating ministry. Obviously, they're looking for more. And then John takes that, that opportunity not to point more to himself, right, but to point to Jesus. This is what they're looking for. How about you? Like so many times we find ourselves on, on these journeys, not really knowing where we're headed, but all along we, we, we know that God, or we eventually find out that God's sovereign tugging in our hearts draws us to himself. And perhaps many of us, and I know this is my, my story, we kind of grew up in offhanded church life and never really understood what it was all about, never really experienced the life that we have in Christ until something broke through, until we really met Jesus, until we had really seen Jesus. And that's exactly what these disciples are doing. They really want to see Jesus. They really want to see the Messiah. They really want to see what this, like him, and they want to see something change in their life. And this, this whole assumption about why they're following Jesus is confirmed because their response to him is, Rabbi, teacher, they're looking to him. Rabbis were a big deal. They invested for years training their prodigy, they're training their disciples constantly. And so they recognize Jesus as teacher. They're saying, we're putting ourselves under you. And they, and, and they ask him, where are you staying? In other words, they're intending to go follow him. They're intending to sit under his teaching, at least for a while, to find out if he really is the one who will give them the life that they're looking for. And you can just kind of imagine, this is me putting you on my imaginary vision glasses of things that may or may not have happened but you can imagine the scene later that afternoon or evening they're all kind of sitting at the table and jesus is just gazing into their eyes to some degree and i'm not talking about like in weird romantic ways i mean he's just kind of peering into them and he's peering into their hearts and he's pouring in refreshment into their dry and weary souls right that's that's what they walked away with that night. And how do I know that? By the way, Andrew responds in the next verse. He responds with joyful obedience. Verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him, following Jesus. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought Simon to Jesus. How amazingly simple that is. How complicated do we make our faith oftentimes, right? And when it's here, it's so sinful. It's simple. It's, 
joyful. It's joyful, faithful obedience. Like Andrew would never have made one step towards Christ and never made one step towards obedience if he had not seen Jesus himself. And by seeing Jesus, by Jesus pouring into his weary and dark and and messed up and, and dry soul, he leaves that moment going, wow, such joy. And he goes to his brother and the first words out of his mouth are, we have found the Messiah. Come. Let me, meet, let, me, let me introduce you to him. We have found the Messiah. What I love about this is that the first thing that happens in Andrew's life is not he becomes a holy roller or, or, or some kind of culture warrior. No. He just wants people to see Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, you want others to see Jesus. We have found the Messiah. Sit on that for a moment. Let's not run past that too quickly. Yes, the Christian life has so many other aspects to it. Yes, the Christian life is about obeying God's commands and seeking holiness and standing for truth. And we can be assured that he empowers us in those things as well. But please understand that there's nothing more fundamental to the work of God in in his disciples' lives than to just simply declare, I've seen Jesus. Let me show you him myself. Let me introduce him to you myself there's just something simple about this moment that's unfolded here but it doesn't end there does it he brings simon to jesus and what does jesus say to him he says well you're not simon you were simon son of john but you will be called cephas now that seems like an odd exchange for someone you've never met. I mean, if I meet a stranger and I say, hey man, my name's Tom, and he says, no, you look like a Dan to me. I'm probably not going to receive that well. Right? And so we don't really know why, and, he, and John doesn't explain, the Gospel of John does not explain exactly why this matters, but we all know, right? We all get it, right? Simon needed to change. Just like every one of us in this room needs to change. The old man needs to die so that a new man may be birthed. This is what we see in this first encounter between Peter and Jesus. And I just want to like, stop and just tap into the true beauty of the scene for a moment. Jesus is telling Peter who he really was before Peter became who he was. Right? And it's the wonderful news about the gospel. It's one of the great promises of the gospel. One of the great promises of God's redemption is that God does for you what you can't do for yourself so that you can become what he wants you to be. This is why he goes to Abraham. Abraham was this pagan guy out in the middle of nowhere. And he says, you will be mine and your seed will be mine. And and they will be, I will make a covenant promise with them. And they shall be a great nation long before they ever became anything like that. And he's doing the same thing with Peter. Become what you are, are already in Christ. 
Jesus is doing something in Peter before Peter even knows he's doing it. And listen, we all know the mess that Peter was, right? I mean, he stumbled around. He, was a, he could be a bit of a macho, prideful guy and thought he was bigger and better than he actually was. And we see him tripping and stumbling all the way through the book of John. We'll see over the next few months. But there's something sweet about this, right? This is a wonderful thing to experience in the gospel, isn't it? Recognizing that you are who you are because Christ made you who you are, so now be who you already are. Now you tell me that isn't hope for your daily slog. Right? When you just go, oh, this is awful. Today's awful. This week's been awful. This year's been awful. This, this decade's been awful or whatever it may be. Your comfort in the daily slog, your confidence in the daily slog of your life is to remember that you are who you are before you even became it. Because Jesus said so. Jesus said so. This, my friends, is what it means to be, to depend upon Jesus, to, to, to depend on him for true sight, to depend on him to give you the willpower and the joy to obey, to give you the ability to see who you really are because he's crafted you into his image. That's what it means to depend on Jesus. Right? And you know, you, we could end the sermon right here, but I'm not. <laughs> because there's so much more here. There's so much more here because we haven't even gotten to Philip yet and his engagement with Nathaniel. And this leads us to that third point because, listen, this last point just really ties it together. To be known by Jesus. Jesus' saturated discipleship is to be known by Jesus. In this we'll see that Jesus finds us, that Jesus sees us intimately. He knows us to the very nth degree, the very inside of us, and he helps us see and understand what we're seeing. So the next day, Jesus gets up, he's heading toward Out of Galilee, and, 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 uh, and John gives us another like, chapter of this idea of discipleship. And so Jesus is making his way out, pick up there in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and he found Philip and told him, follow me. Jesus finds Philip. It's not Philip finding Jesus. Philip's probably doing just fine by himself. No one is on merry way, but Jesus finds Philip. And there's such power here. And the reason why this is so powerful is because Philip hears his words and follows Jesus. This is a picture of a shepherd who's calling out for his sheep, and the sheep hear his voice, and they come to him. This is John 10. John 10. We see this principle we'll look at this more fully in a few months verse 11 i am the good shepherd he says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep for the sheep verse 14 just picking up different parts of this i am the good shepherd i know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me i know and i know the father i lay my life down for the sheep and as Jesus is teaching these kind of things, all the religious leaders and all the Jews around here trying to figure out what Jesus is trying to get at, they just want Jesus to speak plainly to them. And they're at this festival at the Solomon's Colonnade, and the Jews, in verse 24, says, surrounded him and asked him, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? As if he has been. 
How long do you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, just tell us plainly. And I love how he responds. Verse 25, I did tell you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, and he's greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. Now, doesn't that inform this whole encounter with Philip a little bit better, doesn't it? He cries out to his sheep. He calls out to his sheep, and his sheep hear his voice, and they follow after Jesus. Now look, I get it. I get it. The whole, we talk about it here sometimes, the doctrine of election and predestination, it's just a, it's a, it's a booger. And it's hard. It's hard to get our minds around it. And I know some people wrestle with it. We have people in our church who do, and you, we know that it's just a, this is a place where we're, it's safe to keep pressing in and wrestling with these things. But many of us who are, have come to a full list, we recognize it's this kind of encounter that makes this doctrine so beautiful. Right? That God calls out, Jesus calls out to his sheep, and his sheep know his voice, and they go after Jesus. How about you? How about me? Are we, do we really know that Jesus is our shepherd? Do we really know that this shepherd lays down his life for his sheep? Do we really know that the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep will not in one instance let you perish, let you fall away? And I don't know about you, but there are days I just want to hang it up. I just want to go. I, I, I mean, just, I just like, is it really worth it? And Jesus says, no, you're mine. You're mine. You're mine. And nothing will ever change that. And so then Philip's receiving this and he's following after Jesus and he does something that's not surprising to us because we saw Andrew do it. He goes out and tells others, just like Andrew did. And he goes and gets his buddy Nathaniel. Now I love this. This is, I love cranky old Nathaniel. Verse 44, now Philip was from the side of the hometown of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and told him, I have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And man, Nathanael's response says a lot about him, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth? He's a curmudgeon. A little bit of a bigot. Can anything happen from those people across those tracks? He had formed an opinion about Nazarenes for whatever that is. They weren't the richest. They weren't the most educated. They were whatever. And he's formed this opinion. He has this idea. He has this worldview really crystallized in his head when Philip comes to invite him to come see Jesus. And he says, well, okay, how good this could this guy be if he's from that side of the tracks? If he's one of those people, well, I don't know if I really have much to do with him. But for whatever reason... Nathanael goes with him to Jesus, and in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And that's an interesting way that Jesus speaks of Nathanael. Here's an Israelite that has no deceit. And commentators, man, they, they posit all kinds of different ideas about what this means. 
but I think the majority of them come land at least in this. There was no pretend for Nathaniel. What you see is what you get with Nathaniel. All of his mess, all of his rough places, all the, you know, the, the rough skin, whatever it is, he's, he is who he is. He didn't try to play the game. He wasn't trying to play religion. He wasn't trying to be something he wasn't. He wasn't trying to put on the happy smile. He's a man with no deceit. He is who he is. And, and, and what Jesus is saying in that moment is, I see you. I see you. I found Philip, and now I see you. I don't know that anyone's, has anyone ever said, I see you. That's what we want to be seen. Like, so in order for us to, we want to see Jesus so that what? So that we will be seen. Right? We all want to be seen. And probably, maybe for the first time in his entire life, Nathaniel feels like he's been seen. And Nathaniel asks the question, well, how do you know me? I've never met you. I don't know who you are. And he says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And I don't know what that means. <laughs> None of us do. No one knows what's going on in the fig tree. We can pause a lot of guesses, I guess, but whatever was going on in the fig tree, the fact that Jesus knew what was going on in the fig tree, it completely unraveled Nathaniel. Right? Completely unraveled him. Something he saw in Nathaniel under the fig tree that was so intimate to Nathaniel. I mean, again, just, just pausing my own ideas here, it wrecked him. To the point that the only option he had is, you must be the Son of God. You must be the Son of God. Have you ever felt like you've been that known by Jesus, my friends? Listen, you can't do it if you're not looking into the mirror. That's why we say, just get, get the cards, read your Bible, fumble through that. If you get some good greeting times, if you get three or four, if you get all of them, great. No one's grading you. I'm, we're not going to give you an A at the end of the year because you read every one of the Bible. Like, that's not what we're about here. But you know what we're about is that by doing that, we see Jesus and he can see, and, and we know he sees us. Nathaniel, for the first time, probably feels seen by Jesus. And then Jesus says, it's more than just being seen and what you're seeing. I want you to understand what you're seeing because look at what Jesus responds to Nathaniel's declaration of him being the Son of God. Verse 50. Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? That's small potatoes, Nathaniel. I mean, how many times in our own lives, friends, do we have such small expectations of what Jesus can do in our life? That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. You have a small expectation of what I can do in your life. And then he redirects Nathaniel's thoughts and he says, okay, Nathaniel, um, actually you're going to see far greater things than these things. Heavenly things. Angelic You'll see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You think what I've seen and what you've seen now makes sense? I'm going to show you something that's going to blow your mind. Because remember what I said at the very beginning of the sermon. The whole scope of discipleship is to recover what we lost, which is namely to see God. 
you think you've seen something, Nathaniel? I've got such marvelous things yet to show you. Do you believe that? Is this your endeavor as you seek to be a disciple? But that's the problem, right? Not knowing God is at the very heart of what plagues us from really getting the most out of our discipleships to really understanding God's eternal plan of redemption that frees us to see God clearly. That thing that is, is sin. Friends, every one of us has it. It's deeply rooted and there's residual sin and it will be there and you'll be fighting it until Jesus returns. But you can be assured that because Jesus has now laid a new identity on top of you, you can become what you already are. The New City Catechism that we pr promote here and many of you use at home ask the question what is sin just so we can get a big picture of what it is sin is rejecting and ignoring god in the world he created rebelling against him by living without reference to him by by not being or doing what he requires in his law resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation do you get it do you understand why we don't see god now discipleship is recovering our ability through God's help and through his work of his spirit in our life to see God, to see Jesus, and to know that he sees me. To truly see and know God as he's really revealed to us. So then, as a disciple, my I got a couple questions for you. For us to just chew on and lead and sit and walk away. As disciples, are we always looking for Jesus? Are you always looking for Jesus? As disciples, do you, do I know that Jesus sees our true selves as God sees us in Christ? If you've been redeemed, I said this to many of the men in my small group, and I'll say it here. God doesn't look, kind of creep his head around the blood veil and say, I know who you really are. No. He sees you in Christ because of what Christ has accomplished for you. As disciples then, third question, do you know that you are seen by Jesus at the deepest level of your heart? There's nothing too shameful there that Jesus will enter into and heal and know you intimately? And last, as a disciple, do you know that God sees you, sees me, even when we don't see him? There are cloudy days, but God always sees us, even when it's hard for us to see him. Friends, stay in the word. Stay in the church. These are the means of grace that God has given us so that we might grow as followers in Jesus. And so as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning, doesn't this just bring a whole lot more depth to what we're about to do together? That when we come to this, man, it just reminds us who we are, what God has made us and what we're becoming, and that that, that invitation to the table is not, it's not, it's not futile, it's not thin it's robust it's the same like the same picture i said earlier about jesus sitting around the table and pouring into their dry and weary souls that's this picture 
Until Jesus returns, he's there. And we take, this, we take this table together so that he would fill and remind us and fill us with his dry and weary soul so that we might live and know him and be known by him. So let's prepare our hearts for this as Justin comes to lead us in our time of Lord's Supper. God, you are great. You are magnificent. We are your people We have covenanted to be so. Where we have failed this week, help bring healing. Where we have been hurtful this week, bring us to repentance. Where we have struggled to believe and trust in you, draw near to us. And as we take of this table this morning, Renew a right spirit in us, reminding of us what you have promised us from the beginning, that you'll be with us even to the end of the age. It's in Christ's name, amen.